Hi, and welcome to School of Sports. This is a podcast produced by the Center for Sports Communication at Marist College, where we have a regular series of conversations with the people shaping sports media and PR. This is episode one, the Dave Zirin edition. I'm Leander Sharlockens, and co-hosting with me this time is Ross Lippi, a junior here at Marist College. Our guest today is Dave Zirin, sports editor for The Nation and the author of eight books. He's also a frequent television contributor and hosts the excellent Edge of Sports podcast. His Twitter handle is at Edge of Sports, and we recommend that you give him a follow. Dave's book, A People's History of Sports in the United States, is actually the textbook for the sport culture and communication class I teach here at Marist, which Ross can attest to because he's in that class. That I can. He's uh, hopefully doing his reading, too. I started reading Dave myself while I was a teenager growing up in Belgium because Dave was one of the first reporters, if not the first, to write about sports entirely from a political perspective. He's a journalistic hero of mine, and I couldn't think of a better time to bring him on than right now. I'm delighted to welcome Dave Zirin as our very first guest on this inaugural episode. Dave, we're thrilled to have you on. Uh, Why don't we start by having you explain how a graduate of McAllister College in Minnesota came to be one of the most distinctive voices in sports media? Um, Do do you know someone else from McAllister College to whom you're referring? Because... I'm not sure if I, I deserve that description. You're pretty much but, um Yeah, that's kind. Um, yeah, I know. Not a lot of comp for McAllister on this front. Um, yeah, McAllister College. It's a college of 1,700 students in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I'll tell you, one of the great things about going there from New York City was it, you know, it gave me some space from where I grew up, which was kind of hectic and crazy. You know, New York City in the 80s and 90s was not exactly a a tranquil environment uh, and going out there to a D3 school, it was also very helpful because there was a lot of critical thought and study about history and about sports while sports on campus itself in a division three setting, wasn't this kind of you know, hegemonic ideological structure that took, that drank in all of the oxygen on campus when it came to the, the social and cultural life of what was going on. So, you know, it was a good place to just sort of be for four years and hit the books and figure out what I thought about the world. So, Dave, you've never, you know, I say in air quotes, stuck to sports. Is that whole idea of sports just being about sports finally a thing in the past with the way that sports have become super politicized in the last few years? Yeah, I mean, I think that this was in a lot of ways an inevitability. And when I started doing this work about 15 years ago, it was seen as sort of like this oddity this idea of talking about sports in the context of being bigger than sports. Um, Certainly in the United States, it was much less discussed than, say, like soccer in in Europe and and in the global south. But in the U.S., that was just not like a thing that people talked about because the the general idea about sports was to, you know, to quote uh, Snoop Dogg, the game was, you know, to be sold, not to be sold. It was about Michael Jordan. It was about this idea of becoming global icons. And, of course, above all else, it was about entertainment. And, yeah, that has changed over the last couple of years. And I think what's changed it, though, um, is less about, you know, journalists like myself pointing this out, because I think I could have pointed this out for decades. And if, you know, everything was right in the world, no one would care. You know, I would have been like, you know, the guy on the street corner uh, screaming about, you know, foreign invaders from outer space or something. You know, I just would have been that guy pushing the shopping cart with the surgical mask, to quote, uh, paraphrase Woody Allen there. 
but but the the thing that that makes it different over the last several years um, is the existence um, of movements in the streets, particularly the Black Lives Matter movement. And when you look historically at when sports and politics have collided and clashed, uh, it's always because there are tumultuous movements off the field that then ricochet on the field. And then the field then reshapes how people are thinking about themselves in the streets. And that's what we've seen the last couple of years. And when you couple that uh, from an ingredients perspective with social media, which gives athletes the ability to speak directly to the public. And when you couple that as well with the fact that we have, you know, a reality show host as president. And so this idea, which was so prevalent, like when I started doing this work, that politics was for politicians and for ordinary people, politics was not something you, you know, for, for you to talk about. And that would include athletes. Yet today, I mean, when you have somebody like this person in the White House, how can you possibly say that, that, athletes should be exempt from talking about politics when you have you know, somebody like this with his finger on the nuclear button. Right. Did the media industry catch up to you in a way? Um, were you sort of ahead of your time? I mean, you, you kind of invented not sticking to sports, which nobody seems to now. Uh, but maybe uh, that was also because you were working for a political magazine. Well, I, mean, I was going to say that, like, from that, that, for me to say that would be sort of like the uh, you know, the fly who lands on the horse and then convinces themselves that they're actually riding the horse. Uh, you know, so that that's uh, above and beyond <laughs> anything that I did. Um, but I but I didn't start with a political magazine. Um, I, I did start working for newspapers and community newspapers um, in, in the Maryland area. And the, the, when I worked for them, um, I said to them that, look, I'll do whatever you want. You know, I'll sweep the floors. I'll stay late. I'll cover the, the drunk driving accidents, you know, and listen to the police scanner, which is absolutely brutal, brutal work. Uh, but in return, all I ask in return is I want to be able to have a space to write a sports and politics column. So it started like that with something that I wanted to do, like really explore the connections between the two, but also write about it in a popular way. That would be like in a you know local newspaper, 800-word sports columnist kind of way. And it was through publishing those and putting them on the Internet that the Nation magazine, which, as you said, is a political magazine, got in touch with me and said, hey, we've never had a sports writer in our 150 years. How would you like to do it? And so, so it, it worked its way around that way, which I always um, think was really helpful because, you know, sometimes you know, you've got your Internet trolls or whatever, and, you know, they'll, they'll attack me sometimes by saying, well, you're not really a sports writer. You're a politics person who's just using sports to push your political view. And it's like, well, actually, no, I'm, I'm trained as a sports writer who wants to write about these connections. So, you know, that, that line of attack doesn't have a lot of uh, validity. Not that that ever stopped the Internet. So building off that, are you a sports fan first or a political junkie first? Or did they kind of happen oh, simultaneously? Man. I mean, I kind of feel like if you asked me five years ago, I'd give you a different answer. Because it's hard to be a political junkie these days when the politics that does exist is basically like, you know, uncut heroin that feels like it can kill you every time it hits your vein. I'm not loving politics too much these days. And sports in and of itself, you know, these days have a lot <laughs> to really uh, so dislike and distrust. I mean, I think that, that speaks more generally to our times in 2017 that so many of these institutions 
are either crumbling or under a great deal of question. I guess I will say, you know, that I have a nine-year-old kid who's an absolute sports fanatic, and he's one hell of a basketball player. And, um, you know, seeing sports through his eyes has definitely given me a new lease on life in terms of uh, looking forward to the games, loving watching them with him, getting into the careers of individual players. So, you know, and when you couple that with, you know, everything that's happening in the world and my sort of um, instinctual internal desire for more escape, not less, I guess you'd have to say these days I'm much more of a sports fan than a politics fan. Something I've been wondering about, Dave, do you think sports media will eventually wind up becoming as partisan and sectarian as the political media has become? Oh, I mean, in, in some respects, it's, it's heading in that direction. Um, but at the same time, I still think there's a huge audience of people who really do just love the stories of sports and the narratives of sports, um, independent of the politics. I mean, obviously, it's hard to have that when you have things like the vice president of the United States staging a six-figure stunt to chill the First Amendment rights of black athletes in the NFL. I mean, you know, once you have a scenario like that, it's just a little bit hard to say, yeah, this isn't going to be a partisan discussion, um, particularly because I think if sports media was just straight-up objective, they would be condemning Mike Pence for this. They're condemning Jerry Jones for saying that players don't have First Amendment rights on his sideline, but because of the partisanship, there will be people who back up Mike Pence no matter what, and just as like there will be people who support the players no matter what. Um, so, no, I think that there will always be space for the middle, uh, for people who don't want politics and sports, just like there's still space for things like the nightly news, uh, where you know which people just watch because they don't want opinions with what is the basics of the coverage. Uh, but, you know, but definitely the splintering of the audience, I mean, it's happening, no doubt about it. So you're an activist as much as a journalist. You, you spoke at the rally for Colin Kaepernick in front of the NFL headquarters a few weeks ago. Do you consciously blur that line? Should there even be a line? I mean, isn't the notion of impartiality in media a myth anyway? Yeah, I've had no um, qualms whatsoever about being an activist journalist and about standing up for the things I believe in and that I write about. And there's, you know, people shouldn't act like this is a sort of a new creation. I mean, the idea of being a muckracking journalist is somebody who takes a position who not only covers rallies but speaks at them. I mean, that's as old as media itself. Uh, that's as old as the first newspapers. And so, like, it's I think it's important. This is where history becomes so important, too, because it's like knowing what kind of tradition of journalist you are and then reading the people who wrote in that tradition and learning about their lives. I think all of that's really important to give people a sense of place and a sense of purpose in this world of journalism. And that, that's the particular uh, line that I stand in. But at the same time, if I met, you know, other journalists, like at that Kaepernick protest, like I bumped into a bunch of journalists who I respect a great deal, uh, who write for places ranging from ESPN to uh, the Washington Post. And they were, they were out there covering the event, and they saw me. And then, you know, they, they stayed covering the event and interviewing people. And I said, hold on a second, I'm going to go speak at the microphone, then I'll talk to you again. You know, it's, it's just different ways. Uh, to do the same work. And I do think that journalism is a big enough and generous enough and, I guess, abstract enough field that it can, it can actually be an umbrella that encompasses all of these different, sh different shades of politics and approach. Where do you think, Dave, the media failed in covering the Kaepernick story? Because it seems a huge swath of Americans still don't really understand why it is that he actually kneeled. 
yeah, where did the media fail on this? Um, I mean, where didn't it fail on this, honestly? Uh, I think like w- one of the main ways it failed was that the people covering the story um, weren't necessarily conversant in the issues that Colin Kaepernick was talking about. And I think that Colin Kaepernick and people who support him were able to mitigate that somehow uh, by, by going onto social media and explaining explicitly why they're doing what they're doing. The problem there, though, is like we all know this, that social media can be an ideological echo chamber. So you're talking to people who are already uh, pre-inclined to support what it is you're doing. And so while they've done, I think, a very good job of publicizing why they're doing what they're doing, I think that the initial round, like when the cement really set of why Colin Kaepernick was doing what he was doing and the terms of the debate of why he was doing what he was doing, I mean, became kind of skewed dramatically from the very beginning uh, to to the point of which that anytime you see an article about Colin Kaepernick that didn't mention uh, the words uh, Alton Sterling or Philando Castile, in other words, did not speak about the very killings that summer that pushed him to do what he did, right. then it makes it all just seem like what you have is this millionaire spoiled athlete who's just deciding that he wants attention. And then that becomes the narrative by which people view it. Um, or, the, you know, the, you know all the, the horrible crap you heard about, like how does somebody who was adopted and has white parents and grew up in the suburbs of Wisconsin, like who is he to talk about racism in the United States, you know, and there's, that's an an incredibly, incredibly skewed and biased way uh, to write about what is, why he was doing what he was doing. It also imposes the politics of the writer on this as if our motivations can boil down to like how we grew up. And because, I mean, I think any of us in terms of how we grew up, it can be used to, to damn us in terms of what our opinions are today. Um, and yet, you know, that's been, and yet not talking about like the fact that we are human social beings and Colin Kaepernick is not like the, you know, behaviorist product of the parents who raised him or the community in which he grew up, but he's a product of the years in which he is alive and the years of which he is interacting. And that includes the Black Lives Matter movement. And that includes these videos that went viral, which I think unless you literally have no conscience whatsoever. They will upset you to see somebody getting killed on video. So I think everyone's kind of wondering, what exactly is the end game for this kneeling during the anthem thing? I mean, what do you think the new normal will be, and can the uh, the NFL ever go back to the way it was? There's obviously been I mean, uh, a ton of headlines the past couple of days, so I was just, can, no, can we go it's back? A, it's a great question. It's a great question. And, you know, once again, looking at history, um, people ask that same question after Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fist in 1968. People ask that same question when, you know, Muhammad Ali was speaking out against Vietnam or when Billie Jean King was fighting in the Battle of the Sexes match. You know, people ask that question, like, is this going to be the new normal uh, politics at every turn or, or will it just fade away? And I really do believe this, that the, the correct answer is that it'll neither be the new normal nor will it fade away that this is a cultural expression, not a movement expression as much as a cultural expression of the moment that we're in right now, and that, and that the reverberations of it will be generational, and they will last a very long time, and we'll be talking about it for, for, for decades to come, um, hopefully if there are decades to come, and, and trying to figure out 
like like where we are and who we are. So it's like I don't think, and I think that I think this is one thing. People are so desperate for some kind of resistance to this train wreck of an administration that they look at these athletes kneeling oftentimes. And obviously I'm only speaking about two-thirds of the country because one-third is still in Trump's camp. But, but the two-thirds of the country that's looking at, at this, like what the heck is happening to, to America right now, like they'll look at these athletes and think that is the movement. And so if this fails, then somehow we fail to offer some kind of response. And that's just the wrong way to look at it. I mean, athletes are not going to lead a new movement for social justice. They're going to reflect one, and they're going to amplify one, right. and they could even be leaders within a larger movement. But the idea that they will substitute for one is just, I think, ahistorical and bad politics and a recipe for disappointment. Well, one of the things I love about your writing is that it is rooted in sports history. Um, so when you look at Kaepernick and you sort of you have all this background in, in the history of social justice uh, protest in sport, what does your gut say winds up happening with him? Is, is he one of those guys that just winds up being blackballed just for being the first? Um, again, like this is a great, great question because history becomes really important. Uh, because, you know, one of the things we forget is that even though Kurt Flood was blackballed, he did get a chance to try to get back into the major leagues um, a couple of years after the fact. Uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, they had some tryouts with some NFL teams even after 1968. So I think it's highly possible that Colin Kaepernick, after sitting out a year, two years, things calm down, you know, he finds somewhere to, to latch on to, if he, in fact, at that point still wants to play. Um, I think that's all highly, highly possible. Um, it just takes one owner, remember, to have even just a little bit of courage to say, I'm going to give this guy a shot. And when you couple that with how absolutely crappy some of the quarterback play is in the NFL, it just takes one owner to say, gosh, you know, the success of my team actually matters more than the 48 hours of negative publicity that might happen. And I, and I communicated with Colin. He absolutely wants to play. But what I said over the summer um, on the Dan Patrick show, which I was immediately nervous about, I now feel better about, I guess, which as I said early in the summer or late in the spring, I said I didn't think he would sign with a team before the season. Um, I, I think he very well could sign with a team if somebody gets hurt during this season. I still think that's possible. But I think as the weeks go by, the general rule in the NFL is after five or six weeks, it just does not even pay to sign a new quarterback at that point. There's just really no point. Um, and so, but we'll see what happens after five or six weeks. But you can just look at like several teams with serious Super Bowl aspirations who are falling apart right now because they don't have a decent quarterback, specifically looking at the Oakland Raiders and the Tennessee Titans. And just wondering, like, wow, like, how is their ownership more willing to waste a season of their players' careers than sign Colin Kaepernick, who, let's remember, whose greatest crime is having a social conscience. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's, I can certainly think of a couple teams that are in need of a good quarterback. But with professional And athletes, who the holy hell, and who the holy hell is Jerry Jones, who <laughs> signs people who commit violence against women, people who have committed attempted murder, uh, people who have DUI, people who are sexual predators, 
um, and he himself allegations of sexual assault, who the hell is he to say that his players can't protest during the anthem? This is so Trumpian to me because it's this idea of amoral billionaires trying to prescribe morality to the rest of us. And I can't imagine I'm the only person who's just absolutely sick of that social dynamic in this country. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So last question here. Do you think President Trump made a mistake picking a fight with the most beloved and bipartisan institution in the country, the NFL? Um, I think he absolutely uh, makes mistakes every time he opens his mouth. So why should this be an exception? Um, yeah, of course. I think I think it's a weird thing, though, because I read an article in the Washington Post about it, which is that like they there are people in the Trump administration who think that he can win re-election uh, by repelling two thirds of the country if he's able to hold on to his base, as well as make the rest of us depressed and apathetic about any other political alternative. So basically, it's a really, really cynical theory of government. Yeah. Like this idea that I will play to one-third of the country and absolutely destroy the other two-thirds. And that's their game book at this point. And so from that perspective, it was very smart to do what he did. Racism, division, demonization, that's the Trump way. Uh, do I think it's going to make him look good in his from a historical perspective? Uh, no, I think he's going to go down in history as an, as an absolute monster and an aberration if we get through this time in one piece. And people will look at this NFL thing as just more evidence of his incompetence and his racism and his, uh, and his inability to govern this country. Dave, on that note, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I think this podcast. Yeah, sorry is... to end on such a cheery note. There. <laughs> no, that's just fine. Uh, I think we've hit our high, uh, high water mark already as a podcast. Ross, what did you think of that interview? I thought it was interesting. It was, it's nice to finally have um, a name to a voice, I guess you could say, for all the textbook reading you've been assigning. <laughs> yeah, no, it's what I've always liked about Dave's well, his podcast and his writing is that you know he's sort of unapologetic about what he believes in, but that gives it an honesty, I think, that is missing from a lot of sports writing where there's always like this subtext and there's always this sort of you know, reading between the lines of what they really mean. And that's never really there with him. He just kind of says what it is that he's trying to uh, trying to highlight. Yeah, I, abs- I absolutely picked up on that from the brief conversation we just had with him. He's not, uh, he's not apologetic about his beliefs, exactly. <laughs> Definitely not. But I think it was a great conversation to start off our podcast series, and I th- I'm excited for many more to come. Now it's time for our Rick Smith's Fun Fact. Just to explain... Smits was a longtime NBA player and a one-time All-Star with the Indiana Pacers. The Duncan Dutchman is also Marist's most famous sporting alumnus, so we've adopted him as our mascot. So here's this episode's fact. Smits, who would grow up to be 7'4", only started playing basketball in the Netherlands when he was 14. He tried out for Holland's best basketball coach, which is certainly a niche distinction, but he was cut from his team, one of the semi-pro clubs in the Dutch League. So instead, Smits went off to Marist, and the rest is history. And on that high note, it's time to end. Our producer today was Matt Zutkovich. Our editor was Don Musillo. And our researcher was Maria Kiros. For my co-host, Ross Lippi, I'm Leander Sharlockins. Thanks for listening to School of Sports.